0: Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio features Danny Shapiro, interviewed by Catherine Wolfe about spirituality and creative practice at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. Danny Shapiro is the author of several books, including Still Writing, The Pleasures and Perils of the Creative Life. Her most recent memoir, Hourglass, Time, Memory, Marriage, was just released on April 11th. And the Boston Globe called it a gorgeous poetic stay against loss and confusion. Shapiro has never written anything as raw, dark, or brave as hourglass. Danny has also written for magazines including The New Yorker, O, The Oprah Magazine, Vogue, and Elle. Catherine Wolfe is the author of Not Less Than Everything, Catholic Writers on Heroes of Conscience, From Joan of Arc to Oscar Romero, and the former director of the Urupe Center for Community-Based Learning at Santa Clara University. To help me introduce this session, I called up Barbara Mahaney, a former pediatric oncology nurse who spent nearly three decades as a reporter and writer for the Chicago Tribune. Her two collections of essays include Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, and Mother Prayer, Lessons in Loving, just released this last week. Hello.
1: Hi, Lisa Cockrell. Hi, Lisa.
0: Thanks, Barb, so much for joining us today. Where did we catch you?
1: Well, I'm sitting here at my kitchen table, and my hands are still shaking because about five minutes ago, I just clicked on the New York Times Book Review website and saw my very first byline um, in the New York Times. My first byline in the New York Times Book Review of all places. Of all places, and it happens to be an essay. About packing up my beloved firstborn's um, boyhood bookshelf and slipping each one of those books off the shelf and into a box, and how hard that was for me to do, and how much um, each of those books evoked tactily, emotionally, memory you know, just the whole swirl of his boyhood um, came swarming back to me. And that's the power, that's the power of of words, of story, of picture, of turning pages. They just like, these memories are just etched into our souls. And um, and that's why we're here to talk about the power of story and word yeah so, absolutely that's what just happened to me
0: <laughs> well congratulations that's super exciting thank you. yes that's thank so you, exciting danny, uh, yeah so we're going to talk a little bit about um the last festival of faith and writing and a session um mm-hmm. that uh, conversation mm-hmm. that danny shapiro and katherine wolf had and we and we talked a little mm-hmm. bit before uh this conversation you just mentioned that you had really enjoyed Jan- danny shapiro at the festival um, oh,
1: she was great yeah she tell me great. about and what it was a wonderful Wonderful conversation. Yeah.
0: What did you What did you take away from that, or what what really caught you
1: about that conversation? You know, there were a few things that I really loved about it. I loved um, where Danny and Catherine are talking about the, the practice, the, the ritual and practice, and the interweaving between um, like prayerful mm-hmm. rituals and the ritual of sitting down to write. And how um, sometimes just going through the motions, mm-hmm. <laughs> not knowing what's going to happen, kind of sitting down. Sometimes feeling like you might have an empty tank, yeah. but you know you mm-hmm. you have this this right this ritual that you've established, and it sort of serves to sink you into the groove. And then all your little synapses, I think, start to open. Mm-hmm. And Danny was so beautiful in talking about. Um, you know, as a young girl growing up in a home with a Orthodox Jewish father who every morning, you know, she watched him go through the ritual of, you know, putting his prayer shawl on and his tefillin and she even though she she didn't realize i think how deeply that had absorbed into her she drew parallels to her yoga practice and her writing practice and just you know kind of Kindling. She talks about, you know, starting the fire in the fireplace and kindling the candles and rolling out her yoga mat. Mm-hmm. And so she begins the practice of yoga and she has um, similarly, you know, sits herself down and has rituals before she writes. And a few years ago, I, or 10 years ago, I started, even though I'd been a newspaper reporter for a quarter of a century at the time, I started a daily writing practice of getting up really early in the morning and, and there was just this, this, it's almost like a muscle memory. You know, I got used to pulling the sheets back, putting my feet on the cold bedroom floor, tiptoeing down the stairs in the dark, turning one lamp on at my writing desk and beginning to write. And it, you know, just the whole preamble process begins the flow of writing. So I just thought that was a really beautiful thing talking about ritual and rites, um, and the, um, the connectedness between prayerful ritual and writing ritual, because I think prayer and writing for those of us who write and write from a deep place, which certainly Danny does so beautifully, um, they're, they're so intertwined. They're so, um, so, I loved that part of, of the conversation
0: yeah now thinking about your own practice you said you're doing newspaper writing for for many many years mm-hmm. and then um, mm-hmm. which is a certain kind of writing of course it's very kind of assignment driven um, and then uh-huh. you started your own practice about 10 years ago or so uh, of coming downstairs and and and, and just uh, so people know you're, you just had your own book just published a couple of days ago Mother Prayer um, that's been just come out um I'm, I'm wondering what the relationship is between like d- establishing that practice and actually doing your own kind of creative work it's a different kind of writing um and it's a,
1: it's a, yeah,
0: yeah what, what, what what you might say about the differences there and the different kinds of practice necessary kind of creative practice to do that different kind of work
1: it was it was really different and I think there was probably um something really important about the fact that it was at the you know at the just before daybreak often it was in, you know, that murky light of pre-dawn and dawn and being the only one awake in a house. So the only sound was my footsteps and the hissing of the, of the furnace noises and, um, you know, just turning a single lamp on and sitting alone in a room with just me and my computer screen. And I've often remarked on how, curious it was that it was such it was it was a scarier kind of writing than the writing I did for the news did for the newspapers you know for the newspapers even though I would work you know I sometimes did like 10 part series and investigative things and spent a long time reporting and writing certain stories but when there was a nervous or there was a um some degree of you know um holding your breath, even Mm -hmm. when I was writing a newspaper story. But you always knew there was, um, there were a a whole safety net of editors and copy editors who would catch anything if, Mm -hmm. you know, God forbid you, you know, needed catching. And I was always telling other people's stories. So there was Mm -hmm. something particularly vulnerable and exposed about sitting by myself in Mm -hmm. the near dark writing stories from this deep place inside me and just hitting the send or the publish button Mm -hmm. with no copy editor, no (laughs) editor backing me up, just me and then just, you know, shooting it out into the cyber world and knowing it would fall onto the computer screens of People I knew and loved, some people I didn't know at all. My mother in law would (laughs) regularly read it, and therein is its own level of scariness. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I was writing, I was writing um, just deeply um, heartfelt, soulful pieces and writing about your soul. Um, And putting it out there in the world is something that I certainly didn't do as a, you know, Chicago Tribune newspaper writer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's scarier, but ultimately um, such a deeper connection and it's worth the risk, I think. Well,
0: thank you so much for um, for joining us here today and talking about um, both about Danny Shapiro and Catherine Wolf's conversation at the festival. What you enjoyed about that, but then also about your own uh, creative process and um, the rituals that you've created in your own life. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I love talking to you. <laughs> so great to talk. Okay, take care, Lisa. Bye. Bye. And now Danny Shapiro and Catherine Wolf on spirituality and creative practice at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing.
2: Well, I'll begin with just a little setup. When I first started reading Danny's work, I kept feeling such a sense of commonality with her, and I was sort of going through all the things that we were thinking about faith and writing, and I thought, how interesting it would it is that somebody from a, a very large, very noisy, liberal Catholic family from San Francisco would feel so much in common with somebody from a very small, quiet, orthodox Jewish family in New York. But there really is, and, and, and I'm delighted to be here today to be able to speak with you. Um, one thing I was struck with immediately, starting with Still Writing, which is, I think, your latest book, um, is are the things that you talk about in terms of setting up your sort of writing routine, the frame of mind. You talk about starting small. You talk about being unstintingly attentive and honest with yourself, getting rid of distractions, accepting risk, practice and discipline and patience, just showing up. And I'm thinking, that sounds exactly like what you have to do to be prayerful. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. And so I'd like to hear you expand on that. Oh, okay. Let me just say it's
3: such a pleasure to have this conversation with you, Catherine. Um, I think I came to understand so much more about practice and ritual and what it what it meant and what it can do and what my connection to it is in my own life in terms of my childhood and watching my father and his devotion and his practice, whether he felt like it or not. I always assumed he did as a child, but as I grew up, I thought he probably didn't get up in the morning and feel like praying every morning. Um, in in Orthodox Judaism, um, it, when men pray, it involves a very elaborate ritual of putting on what's called tefillin and a tallis, and it's wrapping leather straps and placing phylacteries in certain spots, and, um, and that ritual would be like would be the doorway or the gateway every morning to his to his practice of of, of morning prayer, and and I think it must have sunk in in some way even though it was something that I grew to feel pretty conflicted about over the years so that in writing devotion the sense of ritual and um, how ritual can create um, just the sitting down and doing it whether you feel like it or not like if I unroll my yoga mat and I light a candle and I have a few rituals, to, but, and I put on the music that I listen to when I do yoga, I will practice yoga. Once I've unrolled the mat and actually lit a fire in the fireplace, I'm not going to waste the fire. The mat's already on the floor, so I will practice whether I feel like it or not. And I'm not sure which came first, but in my writing life, uh, I'm not sure who was who said it's not the writing, it's the sitting down to write. Um, if, if my butt is in the chair, I'm probably going to work and whether I feel inspired that day or not um, is completely none of my business and beside the point. Uh, and I also came to realize that days in which I um, felt inspired weren't necessarily the, the days that I did my best work and just the practice of showing up and sitting down every day was what ultimately made the work
2: happen another thing that you say about the uh, job of a writer in terms of uh, what you're trying to produce for the rest of us and how you get there you say if we are deep inside a story we're in another world the world we've created for which for the time being is where we need to live if we are to make it real to ourselves and ultimately to others I love that that quotation of um, Another World because it reminded me of a quotation from George Santayana. He says, he's actually referring to religion, so it sort of wraps up the, 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 the faith and, and writing parallel. Its power consists in its special and surprising message and in the bias which that revelation brings to life. The vistas it opens and the myster- mysteries it propounds are another world to live in. And another world to live in, whether we expect ever to pass wholly into it or not, is what we mean by having a religion. So it just felt very similar to me, you know, that you went... We're talking about going into that court. Sounds to me like you're going right into your heart. Um, Having written a number of novels and a number of memoirs
3: now, very strange for me uh, to have written any memoirs at all, and now the number of memoirs is catching up to the number of novels, like horses and a race. One of the ways, because people with memoir often ask the question of how um, they say you seem to be like a not completely despairing and unhappy person. How do you <laughs> and you you know have a life and it's you know you're not walking around with your hair on fire like that. So um, how do you do it and where do you go? And 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 the the, the image that I. Um, have of writing memoir is that there's a very, very small, very dark, very dense place inside of me that I can go to uh, where all of those stories lie, and that when I go there, it expands and it becomes the world, um, and I can breathe the air, and I can swim in its waters, and I can live inside of it in all of its complexity and all of its emotional life, but then when I leave it, it contracts again and it becomes tiny again. Yes which is completely different from the novelist process for me, which feels more like there's a world that I create, and then it like walks alongside of me all the time when I'm inside of that piece of fiction. And it's as real, at least as real to me, as my, as my world. But I've had the experience often of... Like, there's, there's a particular corner of Riverside Drive and 89th Street where there's a brownstone and there's Riverside Park and there's a yeshiva across the street and it's where my third novel was set and I never passed by there without thinking about Solomon Grossman, the, the narrator of that novel. He's there for me, He's, he resides there. And in my novel, Family History, I set it in a f- town that was very much based on the town that my in-laws live in, which is Andover, Massachusetts. I needed to have a prep school, and I needed to have a particular kind of town, and I created Andover, I just changed the name. And ever since then, when I visit my in-laws in Andover, I feel like I'm entering the world of my novel, at least as much as visiting my Mm -hmm. in-laws.
2: Let me ask you a question that is always asked of memoirists, but those of us who aren't always wanna know the answer anyway, um, which is you go into this, place in your heart, which is so private, um, so personal, and which you could keep private and personal, but you make this decision to really plumb the depths of it, not only that, but to expose it in your writing. That seems absolutely terrifying to me. Um, And I'm wondering, how do you describe the urge to do that rather than just writing another novel where you can have this nice little world that you set up? It won't bother you maybe so much.
3: It is terrifying. It's all terrifying. Um, But I think the urge has to do with trying to, it's it's not that dissimilar an urge, it just has a different um, avenue in, uh, but with trying to make sense of the senseless, trying to make whole something that feels possibly irrevocably broken, mm-hmm. um, trying to piece it back together in a way. You know, when my my 91-year-old aunt, who I'm very close to, uh, when she read Devotion, I was petrified for her to read Devotion because um, she's in it um, in a very loving way, oh, but sure still people so. are sometimes don't like um, portrayals of themselves even when uh, they're loving. Also, there was some tough stuff in there, um, just about me and... and uh, And my father's very observant family, and I I so did not want to wound her in any way. I didn't think I would, but I was afraid. And she called me when she was halfway through devotion and she was weeping. And she said, It's like a Kaddish for your father. Mm -hmm. And it was the most beautiful Kaddish, for those of you who don't know, means it's like a memorial, like a, it's holding alive the memory of speaking, you know, speaking a prayer of memory and of um, grief. uh, And, um, and honoring, it's an honoring, and she couldn't have said anything more beautiful to me. And, and I think in some ways some of, some of my memoir writing, even when it's tough, is in a way that. It's like, tr- it's an elegy in some way for a broken world and trying to, um, trying to put it back, tr- the impossibility of trying to put it back together again in some way. Um, which and, is a little and, different. From and
2: the, 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 the way in which you write about this woman, Aunt Shirley, right? Um, she's just wonderful. She has all these children. She's propagated the earth in an amazing way. Half of them have gone to Israel. She's absolutely loving in the way that she cared for her husband in his very infirm old age. Um, and so she's obviously a real light to you. Um, and, and I did feel, as you were groping your way, even in the s- slow motion, your first memoir where you're not you don't exactly practice your religion let's put it that way but it's there it's there in a very powerful way when you're at your father's funeral which is the way you say he really would have wanted it to be but you weren't necessarily comforted so you weren't there yet Um, could you talk a little bit about how you started then to thaw or to come back to something that had been very embracing? I mean, it was very much part of your life. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's complex
3: because my father's family was not really a part of my childhood or growing up. Um,
2: and they were the very observant. They were the very
3: observant family, okay. and they were a, an enormous and ever-growing family, as you yes. say. <laughs> my Aunt Shirley now has 65 great-grandchildren.
2: <laughs> I meant it um, when I
3: said and, you know, and, and, and counting maybe more by the end of the day. I don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but um,
3: they were this enormous clan um, that lived near Boston, and we were this tiny family um, who lived in New Jersey. And um, my mother, who was not religious, uh, was I think very threatened and uh, and didn't get along with Shirley and so i was kind of kept away from her from my Mm. and and from all of them from my childhood and what you speak of that i wrote about in slow motion was a very difficult time because when my father died it was the first funeral i'd ever been to in my life start with that my mother was near death in the hospital The
2: circumstances were so dreadful and she couldn't
3: be she couldn't be at the burial um the funeral took place in the hospital because they had both been in a car accident which had killed him, and um, the, the funeral, not only was my first funeral and the burial, but it was foreign to me, not the funeral, but the, well, it, it was, because it was in a hospital and it was my father. But the burial was, I saw all of these people snap to into the forms and rituals of mourning that they knew because they had practiced those rituals. Um, and I knew nothing of them. And so it was, um, it was alienating in, 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 in various ways. Um, and even sitting Shiva, they sat Shiva in New York at my grandmother's apartment, and I needed to be with my mother, who was near death in the hospital. Yeah. So there, were, there was a lot of complexity around that, and it took me years. Shirley made a promise to my father when he was dying, which was that she would always look out for me, mm. and she kept trying, mm. and and I was pretty alienated from her. I was loyal to my mother, and and also, um, I really think that what that family did when, during shiva wasn't wasn't very nice to me. They made me choose, yeah. um, either to sit shiva for my father or to take care of my mother. They could have come to New Jersey and sat shiva in the hospital, and they didn't. Yeah. And so I got thrown under the bus. I yeah. understand why. Yeah. But it took me years to like, let that go. Um, not that I walked around angry about it, but I just didn't feel like any connection to that part of sure. my family. And so then, um, over the years, we began to very gradually establish this beautiful relationship. And when I was writing Devotion, I spent a lot of time with her. Uh, you know, one of the things about writing, um, well, writing anything, but maybe writing memoir and the kind of creative nonfiction and journalism that I've done is that it sometimes gives me courage to explore something that I would otherwise not have the courage to explore if I weren't pushing myself to write about it. It's like the writing allows me to explore it. Mm-hmm. And I think in writing devotion, it allowed me to think more deeply and spend more time with, um, with with that part of my family and really try to understand um, what their faith, how they lived their faith and the differences. Um, it, the fact that I lived it differently didn't mean I didn't have it or didn't mean that I didn't get to have it. The fact that it it didn't need to be all or nothing, that I didn't need to be an Orthodox Jew or not have God which was a profound revelation for me.
2: And it seems to have set you on a path of seeking um, in several different directions, it seems. I mean, you have a beautiful scene in devotion where I think in response to your son having said, what are we all about? What's what is Jewish, what am I, that you do a, a, a ceremony, at Rosh Hashanah, at the river. You throw these prayers, and it's just very simple, please, what is it? Please yes. let me understand, or it's, it's tell this, this, me what to do. The ceremony
3: is called Tashlich, and it's, it's actually, um, uh, it happens on at the afternoon of the first day of Rosh Hashanah. And I remembered doing it with my father. Ah. Very interesting the way these tactile things from childhood. There was something about a moving body of water and tossing in breadcrumbs or emptying your pockets into this moving body of water was something that stayed with me because the symbolism of it was something I understood as a so child. So were tapping into something yes. that was
2: very, very deep in you. Yes. Even, even though it had really not surfaced for a long time.
3: Right, and wanting and wanting
2: to give that to and my son. And then later, there's a wonderful scene where you visit a rabbi that you've been studying with, and he has you you put on this whole apparatus. Tell my, us My about father's that. Us So and I found that so powerful, particularly thinking of you as a woman doing yeah. that.
3: So, so one of the things that happened in, in, in the writing of Devotion was that I um, kind of just opened myself up to the possibility of teachers um, and not feel like I had to go find them, but maybe recognize them when they appeared. And, and one of the people who appeared was a, a close friend of mine said, Would you, I'm, I'm, I'm doing Torah study in my apartment in Manhattan once a month. Would you like to join? And at any other time in my life, that would have been a radioactive suggestion. Like, Torah study, no, I'm done, no, 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 I would spent a lot of time studying Torah. Um, but this particular friend is very, has very interesting and, and uh, unusual uh, the gatherer of people. And I thought, oh, well, this is, this could be interesting. And I looked up the rabbi, and it was a rabbi named Bert Vasatsky, who um, is at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and is one of the rabbis who travels the world and meets with, um, imams and priests and 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 really um, mm. creates that 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 beautiful interfaith dialogue. And um, so I thought, well, this will be interesting. So I started to go and I hit it off with Bert, and we became quite friendly. Um, and at some point, I was having coffee with him one day, and he said, "I say this um, with some trepidation and with the knowledge of everything that that's the baggage that's going to go along with this, but if you would like me, to, he said, do you have your father's talus and tefillin? Um, the, the apparatus that he prayed with all the mornings of my childhood. And I did, they were in a velvet pouch in a high up on a shelf in a closet. And I said, I do, and he said, I would, um, it would be an honor for me to, um, to teach you how to put on your father's talis and tefillin. And when he said it, it felt like a shock running through my body because it is a tenet, certainly, of Orthodox Judaism that a woman would never lay talis or tefillin, as it's called, never. It's a male thing, it's just forbidden. And um, But there's this rabbi I respect enormously suggesting this to me, so I say yes, with this feeling of just tremendous, um, both enlivening and trepidation. And I went up to his office at the Jewish Theological Seminary a couple of weeks later and we spent this time doing this um, and it was very powerful, a very powerful experience. I knew even as I was doing it that I would never do it again. It wasn't like this is now going to be a practice in ah. my life. It was, it was too foreign for me and too much my father's um, and not and also I'm not religious in that way so it didn't feel like a ritual that I wanted to embrace, but I felt enormously close to my father doing it and the the talus is a huge ceremonial shawl okay. enormous and it's it's mostly white and embroidered with black stripes and it's yellowed this particular one because it's old and he had it he had me put it over my head mm. um, and the and some men pray this way with the talus over their head and I never understood why and the why is that it creates a kind of enclosure of space so that you can have a private moment um, within this experience um, to commune with God or to commune with whatever you're communing with, to have it be unseen. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a moment in
2: in that office too. Ah, amazing. But then you have this whole other Buddhist practice that you engage in. And I'm so curious about how those two weave together, if at all. You did mention at one point, I thought it was so intriguing, that almost all of the, the people who kind of brought the practice of Buddhism to this country in the last generation are Jewish.
3: Are Jewish, yeah. What's that all there's about? Like, there's a term for it, the jew booze. The jew um. booze? <laughs> Yeah, no, they are. They are. There's like Jack Cornfield and Sylvia Borstein and Joseph Goldstein and uh, Norman somebody. It could be like a law firm. Yes,
2: or an accounting firm. It is striking, isn't it? Oh, it's it? very striking. I, mean, I thought a lot about?
3: about it. I thought a lot about it, and I've talked to some of them about it, too, especially Sylvia Borstein, who was another one of my teachers She's who very much materialized teacher, yes. and became, and beca- I became quite close to. And um, What Sylvia says about Buddhism and the way... Because one of her books... The day that I met her, I thought, I have to understand why this woman is speaking to me so much. And I went to the bookstore at the retreat center where we were, and her books were on the shelves, and one of them was called... That's funny. You don't look Buddhist, <laughs> and it's and the subtitle is something about um, an observant, uh, you know, being an observant Jew and a Buddhist. And I thought, wow, like, how did this woman materialize in my life at this moment? Um, but the way Sylvia talks about Buddhism or the practices, really, of Buddhism, um, is as a technology. She uses that term. She doesn't think of it in her life. If you were to say to Sylvia Borstein, "What is your religion?" she would say, "I'm Jewish," Um, but she's a Buddhist. Um, It's the, it's the, um, and you know, and I I should back up and say that one of the things that I felt very um, sort of secretly and strongly when I started writing Devotion was that you had to pick one. You know, that Mm. like the, the whole idea of well, you can you can have Buddhist practices in your life and um, you can read Thomas Merton, who's, you know, a, a Trappist monk, and you can, you know, go to the synagogue and, 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 and be, or be culturally Jewish, and that that's kind of, um, that that's just like smorgasbordy, like kind of not like spiritually lazy. Pick one and delve into it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people who do that are just kind of, you know, like, just, just a lot of mumbo-jumbo. That was my secret judgmental feeling about that. And I feel so differently now, and I felt so differently about it by the time I had finished devotion, because I real, I just, I was, I was steeped in um, just reading whatever whatever um, drew me in, whether it was Merton or it was Heschel or it was uh, B.K.S. Iyengar, or the, who's a great yogi and, and um, mystic and and writer, um, and. And I thought, why am I leaving these people over there because they're, because they, they, they're from another faith? Mm-hmm. Um, aren't we all grappling with our doubt and uncertainty and, and, and stumbling toward a faith that works for us? And, um, and so I don't consider myself a Buddhist. I have a practice of meditation that has its roots in, in, in Buddhism. And I find myself very, um, I find a lot of solace more solace in reading buddhist texts than i do in reading jewish texts Hmm. Um, but i consider myself jewish so i mean i am jewish you don't consider yourself i mean that's yes yes at at one point when i was writing devotion somebody said are you so you are you contemplating catholicism and i was like (laughs) contemplating Catholicism? no i'm 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 jewish i'm not like looking to convert I'm I'm looking to I'm looking to understand I'm looking to have something illuminated.
2: Although at one point you do describe yourself not only as complicated but as a lost too, as though you're wandering still. Well, maybe, yeah, I think all Jews that maybe feel there. like they're always wandering. Yeah, um, yes. Yeah.
3: Indeed. I mean we're about, yeah. we're heading into Passover so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but I and I, I think the lost feeling or um, had to do with feeling lost to the um, the orthodoxy and the um, and that part of my family for whom I will always be like, um, there's a story that I tell, that I write in devotion where um, because there are so many grandchildren, great-grandchildren on that part of my family, there also are a lot of weddings and bar mitzvahs, but mostly it's weddings and we receive a cream-colored envelope in the mail, um, invariably with my husband's name spelled wrong, yes. always. <laughs> um, and. Um, and it would be a wedding, and I would open it with, with uh, some degree of nervousness to see if it was nearby, and and which would mean we would feel like we, we had, to go. Go. Yeah, had to go, because <laughs> because it was very it, because I felt more I felt more lost at uh, at a wedding uh, in, in that part of my family than I than I would, or more alienated than I would at a ritual of a. Of a religion that I um, was completely not a part of because they practice it so differently. So men and women are seated separately. Oh. Um, uh, you know, so my husband would be like carried off into one room by a lot of men in dark suits with long black beards, going like oh, "bye," and and I would be over here with the women, and um, and everything would be in, in Hebrew, and um, and so we went to one of these weddings. You could walk into the doors of the of the um, of the reception hall it, through separate doors. Men and women can't even walk through the same door. And and there was a couple there who didn't look like anybody else, as we didn't. And um, they had driven up. I'll never forget. It was like they had driven up in a Volvo with Massachusetts plates. It looked like academics. And they came over to us and, and the wife said, do you know what we're supposed to do? Do you know which door we're supposed to walk in? Or and, and I did. And I told her with great pride, well, you go here and you go here and this is what you do. And she said, I am so glad that there are some
2: other non-Jewish people at this wedding.
3: <laughs> and they're my relatives. So th- so yeah. that's what I mean by yeah.
2: l- lost, I think. Right. Okay. But so your Jewishness doesn't really have any kind of creedal element to right. it where you could say, I believe in X, Y, and Z, about the Almighty or about, right. it's really this sense of identification. Yes. Is it, do I get that right? Identity and yeah. identification. Yeah. yeah. It seems, one other thread that I wanted to ask you about, um, you talk about this Buddhist practice and Jack Kornfeld saying, you know, this to accepting suffering, meditating. You talk a lot about Merton. Um, and at one point you talk about how that really is the path but it's a solitary path to some sort of spiritual fulfillment. Um, And yet, coming from this Jesuit family, but also from the Catholic tradition, and it's also the Jewish tradition, we have a a great imperative to serve others so that there is that active element as well. There's a great passage in uh, Dostoevsky, I won't try to find it because I'll lose everything, but a lady of little faith comes to Father Zosima in the brothers' cave. And she says, oh, I've lost my faith. This is terrible. And, and Father Zosima says, you know, let me tell you, if you love your neighbor tirelessly and serve you, this will, this will heal you and your faith will become alive, I'm paraphrasing, and this has been proven. And so there is that whole other side to it that I think of as, you know, a contemplative inaction. Yes. That you, you you do, and you talk about, I love your phrase, faith accomplished. Yes. To me, it's gotta have both, and so yes. I'm curious, do you think about that other dimension? Yes,
3: absolutely, and, and more and more so. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think, while I was writing devotion, I was, and when I was in, just engaged in what I was doing during those years, I was struggling to find my own path to faith. Um, and I looked for community during those years, but we live in the country in northwestern Connecticut. Uh, there wasn't much in the way of Jewish community to be found. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that happened toward the end of that particular part of my journey was that I had a moment where I realized, all right, it doesn't exist. I've tried, I've looked for it, so I can either sit here and complain about it or I can build it. You
2: can make it I happen. can make it. Ah. And
3: that was the beginning for me. And, um, and really, it, it, it happened um, largely after. I mean, it, Devotion was a book, it's, it's, it's structured in 102 small pieces And when I finished the book, I just wanted to keep writing it. I wanted to write like 103, 104. I just wanted to keep going because I had this fear that, uh, because I had had the the enormous Privilege and luxury during the years I was writing that book to do nothing but think about this stuff, yeah. and I really wanted to basically spend the rest of my life doing nothing but thinking about this stuff. Except I couldn't do that because I have a family to support and other things to do, yeah, and I needed yeah. to. I couldn't. I was. I was getting paid to sit in lotus position in the middle of my bedroom floor and think, um, <laughs> and and I was so aware of how amazing that was. Yeah. But in the aftermath, the um, one of the things that I. Because the book ended where the book needed to end, and I knew I, I could feel where the book needed to end. Um, but the journey was so clearly going to be ongoing um, that that after I finished the book, the continu. I mean, if I if I had written more, if I had written a sequel, which I don't, I will never do, I don't think. Um, although now I should never say never about memoir. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I I did build a community um, around. Uh, around my son and his impending bar mitzvah that uh, that came to our home, and I brought rabbis into our home and brought every member, I reached out to every member of, um, of, of the, the community that was Jewish or where there was some interest in Judaism or some member of the family who was Jewish or a grandparent who was Jewish, and they would come and it became something real and something that is ongoing. Um, and this doesn't have to do with the social justice or, or activism piece, but it does have to do with creating something that feels like it has um, uh, meaning and continuation and resonance. So there are kids who are being bar mitzvahed now. My son is now 16 going on 17, so his bar mitzvah was four years ago. But there are kids who, have, who wouldn't have undergone that process, who became involved with that rabbi who now has moved to another part of the country who still comes in and works with them. Oh, that's wonderful. And just a very, its and it's just a satisfying thing for me to feel like I was able to create and build something that wasn't there. Yes, and, he started a congregation. Yeah, you know, t- teeny little... <laughs> They call it the, the Litchfield County Mishpacha Group, which is <laughs> hilarious to me because Litch, Litchfield County is a like Cheever country. It's a bastion of, 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 you know, just Anglo-Saxon, you know, deep roots. and Mishpacha is a Hebrew word that means "family, and never have those two words <laughs> been put together in a phrase.
2: Um, uh, yeah. I have to ask you this question, although I, if I were you, I would probably find it impossible to answer. But it's really the question I think that we're curious about today: is that you are a writer who has come through the, force, the course of your writing life also had this parallel um, kind of resurgence or and then maturation of faith? Can you do you see and can you articulate and are you willing to tell us about any? Impact that you can actually see then on your art. Mm-hmm. What has this development of your faith done to that which you do mm. in your life? In that that's, a, thats such a huge I'm question. Sorry. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's the question. Mm,
3: it is the question. Uh, well, let me sort of back into the question. Um, if, as writers we are our own instruments. I mean, what else do we have? We have our consciousness, we have our memory, we have our imagination. Then whatever impacts that consciousness, that memory, that imagination, has to invariably be poured into our work in some way or be, or, or, and I I think I've become, I continue to become uh, braver. And, I'm thinking of the book that I just finished, which um, it terrified me like no book that I've ever written, because it's written out of a tremendous immediacy, um, and and I don't think that I could be. I mean, I think all all writing is an act of faith. We begin and we don't know where it's going to go if we're writing fiction, and um, and there's a. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which. Um, that, that, that sense of being comfortable, as comfortable as it's possible to be in not knowing, um, and in, in, the, um, in, in believing that the darkness will be illuminated, that, that, that uh, you know, I've often quoted to my students the famous line, Ed Doctorow, um, uh, you know, once said about, writing being like driving a car at night, and you can only see as far as your, in, a, in the fog at night, you can only see as far as your headlights, but you can get all the way home that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's not a metaphor for faith, I don't know what, what you know, what is. And um, and so, you know, and I also often say to my students, like, don't confuse confidence and courage. Um, confidence is useless to you. In fact, more than, like, you, it's useless to writers. It's more than useless. It's detrimental to feel confident, I think. Um, but courage, is facing the fear and doing it anyway. And so, I mean, I'm never, people, if people ever say to me, I'm, fear, I'm not fearless. Um, and when I use the word brave, it's because I'm quaking in my boots, but I'm doing it anyway. Yeah. But I think perhaps that sense of um, rigorous, I wanna say rigorous honesty or rig- rigorous um, really staring at a thing Really looking into it as deeply as it can, as I can, I think comes from a lot of these explorations over the last 10 years or so.
2: Illuminating the darkness, which is faith. Yes. Which is faith. Shall we open the floor to questions? I'm sure many of you would like to ask Danny some questions.
0: Hey, this is Lisa again. We're about to move into the Q&A portion of this conversation, but it's hard to hear the questions on the recording. So I'm going to jump in and repeat them. First, a festival goer asked Danny if she was familiar with the book, The Cloud of Unknowing.
2: I'm not Catherine is. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a medieval classic, but as you say, it's anonymous. We think it was a monk writing to another, but it's a classic of a kind of spirituality that's called um, apophatic, which means that basically you keep God is what is unknowable. So you can say, I can say God is not finite. God is not this. God is not that which is opposed to a much different sort of spirituality called cataphatic, which is, I really find God through a sunset. I find a God through laying on the, the accoutrements that your father laid on uh, to pray. So you go through. And I think most of us humans <laughs> go that way. You know, To me, it's a great meal. Uh, but this it's extraordinary to really kind of teach you how to learn that way don't you think mm. it it reminds me of the, the merton
3: that i quote in devotion of um merton in his in his dialogue with god if i think i know you i'm mistaken um, yes that, you that, say you don't want a dialogue
2: with god i was struck mm. by that because mm. you have that feeling I, well, that, of the unknowable the ineffable mm-hmm. yahweh yeah, that but, we're but, not supposed to actually be able mm-hmm. to speak
3: but it seems to me that Merton does too, it's just he's, he, that, but it's, it's, he's, he's having the dialogue about, about, not, having the, the, about not having the dialogue right, in a way. Right,
2: yeah. right. And of course, the danger of the, that other kind of spirituality is that we, in, in a sense, can trivialize God.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. God is the
2: sunset, God's a great meal, God's my great friend, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Yes.
0: Do you ever have concerns about speaking to audiences comprised of people from faiths other than your own?
3: Uh, absolutely not. Um, one of the things that was remarkable to me, I said this yesterday, but um, about publishing devotion, um, I, 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 I'd i never said this before, actually, before yesterday, but the the experience of publishing devotion was a healing one. I've never had healing and publishing do not go <laughs> hand in hand. Maybe <laughs> healing and writing, healing and publishing, not so much. But when that book came out, and I saw that my very personal, specific, idiosyncratic experience was resonating with people of all faiths and all ages and both genders. And and I started in, in the month that the book came out. I started. I mean, when I was going on book tour and I had invitations from churches and from synagogues and from yoga shalas and and I spoke in people's backyards and I spoke at a at a temple in California that was an extraordinary place that was a halfway house and a synagogue um, for for recovering um, drug addicts and alcoholics and, and and but it was it was this complete range of humanity and experience and what it showed me what it reminded me of in, in a way that I, I think I had never uh, fully really um, understood was how how deeply that universal thread goes in, in all of us and the way that I don't have any, uh, no, I, I, um, I grew up with an us and them. And, uh, and, and I feel um, completely uh, differently about that. I, I mean, I always felt, different. I, n- I never felt comfortable with that, but I arrived at an understanding of why I didn't feel comfortable with that, because it's just not true.
0: How does your writing relate to your action on behalf of social justice?
3: In truth, since the publication of Devotion and then Still Writing, which were both books—well, Still Writing was a book I wrote, and I didn't know—I didn't know I was writing a book that would help anyone. I was trying to help myself. Um, I was trying to understand something for myself. And when the book came out, it turned out that it was helping a lot of people, and I became, uh, in a way that I never had been as a writer. Um, part of lots and lots of dialogues with lots and lots of people who were struggling. Um, and, and I also started teaching in a way, uh, that I had never taught before. My teaching has always been academic and small workshops and entirely about the work on the page. And I s- found myself, you know, quite unexpectedly teaching large groups of people, um, much more in a generative way and, um, and, and people who very likely weren't gonna become writers but were trying to get something down um, that was essential in some way or um, so that they could illuminate something of their own struggles for themselves and very possibly not for anyone else. So I wouldn't call that exact, exactly social justice but it's a kind of work that I found myself doing that has surprised me with how much I've enjoyed it um, and, and, and how um, s- simple in a way it is for me to know how to do that. Um, and, and then when Still Writing came out, that was a book that I knew that I was writing to help people. I was writing it specifically for writers. I wasn't writing it as a, well, I was writing it as a teacher, but I really wanted it to be a kind of companion to writers on their journey. So there hasn't been much time in recent years for anything beyond that and raising my family, but I also am very aware that I'm in a moment where my son is kind of being launched into the world, and he'll be, you know, out of out of the house in a couple of years, and um, that's a new chapter too.
0: In Still Writing, you talk about that, quote, small, dense place where you go when you're working on a memoir, and you make it sound easy.
3: But I'm struggling with finding that place. Any advice? I did not mean to make it sound easy. It is so far from anything resembling easy. Um, I have tremendous resistance to it. Um, I fight my resistance most days that I'm writing. Um, I have various tools, including yoga and meditation, that allow me to kind of get quiet enough so that my mind isn't getting in my own way um, with, all of its, with all of its noise and all of its chatter. Um, and uh, I mean, I've many different kinds of tools that just involve tricking myself into doing it. You know, but, but ultimately, you know, there's a, it, I think it has a lot to do with dailiness. And um, I think it was John Edgar Weidman. I, I could be wrong about this, but he, it, because it was quoted to me by someone else, he described dailiness as a writer as the process of every day that you're writing, you're, you're, you're diving and you're going a little bit deeper into the water every day that you're writing. And with each consecutive day, you're going a little deeper. and a day that you're not, you're not kind of treading water wherever you are, you're heading back up toward the surface. And that it takes thirty consecutive days of that deep dive, um, which is an arbitrary number, but let's just say thirty, before you hit that jet stream, and you're in that place where it's the Buddhists would call it the effortless effort, uh, which every writer lives for and longs for. I and mean, when you're there. You just think, oh, this, 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 this is what <laughs> this. You know, it's it's just like the the it's a it's a fantastically alive feeling I'm not going to say it's a good feeling it's not necessarily it can be painful but it's so alive but I would say the dailiness is a big part of it the uh, just the 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 you know, in the same way, look, I don't, I don't like the subway in New York, right? And I've often thought if, 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 if someone comes to New York from Nebraska and they get on the subway for the first time, it's a terrifying experience. But if you live in New York, you get on the subway every day. You just get on. You don't think I'm getting into this, like, sardine can with all these other people and it's, you know, and then it's going really fast, going underground, it's going underwater, it's, you know, I'm not in control. You don't think those things. You just commute. Right. So it's your commute. So it's a little like that. It's like you sit down and if you if you're used to doing it, um, if you're used to that feeling of profound discomfort and resistance, you're going to do it because it's it's because it's your commute.
0: And finally, can you talk more about your practice of yoga and its relationship to your writing?
3: I think I came up with that metaphor of that very small dark place from my yoga practice. Um, in, in yoga philosophy, uh, there are the samskaras, right, which are, um, there are many, there are different sort of interpretations or, or, or definitions of them, but uh, it translates as scar, And it's, um, in yoga philosophy, these are the places in the body where our stories are housed, where they, they never go away. They never disappear. They're never healed, and there's never closure. They, they, but they also are whole, almost like, um, like they, 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 they fully exist, almost in a, um, in a metaphysical way. They Like they exist in, in, you know, not in time or space, but in the body and 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 complete. And so when when we're practicing yoga, I mean, a, an easy example for this is. Uh, grief is stored in the hips, according to yoga philosophy. So, um, if uh, someone practicing yoga goes into pigeon pose, which is a hip opening pose, and if they stay there long enough, likely they will cry. Um, really, I've, I mean, it's, I've seen it happen. It's happened to me. It's, 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 the body has so much wisdom in that way. And, and so when I practice, I feel like I'm in a practice of, um, Becoming of having those stories be more accessible to me. And by stories, I don't necessarily mean stories that have happened to me. Uh, I don't mean necessarily writing memoir. Um, There's this beautiful uh, passage in a favorite book of mine um, uh, that's about the creative process. It was by a a sculptor named Ann Truitt. Do Do you know Ann Truitt's work? She was a sculptor and painter. And she wrote two journals. Uh, one was called Day Book and the other one is called Turn. And in one of them, she describes being in her studio. And suddenly in the corner of the studio, she sees a vision of a sculpture. It's like it's just shimmering there and on, the, on the side of her studio. And she decides not to make it. She decides that sculpt- I'm not going to make that sculpture, but she sees it very clearly. And a couple of years later, she goes to visit David Smith, the sculptor, and in his studio. And he has just made that sculpture, the sculpture that she had seen. And I just love that story, whatever it means, it seems to speak to the collective unconscious and to uh, just the idea that there are these stories. That um, so, so yoga brings me closer to to that and also um, I think is such a, a practice of Focused concentration and and also metaphor. I mean if, if if I'm in a difficult balancing pose and suddenly I think to myself, hey, look at me. I am doing this pose. I'll fall. Okay.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah. I mean nobody's watching, and I don't get to be like, I wish somebody could take a picture of this because look, I got I'm in handstand. Whoa. Um, and 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 the creative process is like that, too. The minute a writer is thinking, look what I just did. It's that old, you know, Grace Paley, who who was a teacher of mine, used to say that if she loved a sentence enough to want to go, you know, tell her husband the sentence that she just wrote, she knew she should trash the sentence.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you for your wisdom. It's been delightful. Thank you.
0: Many thanks to Danny Shapiro and Katherine Wolf. You can learn more about Danny Shapiro's work at DannyShapiro.com. Thanks also to Barbara Mahaney, who can be followed at barbaramahaney.com. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes Sarah Bass, John Brown, Sadie Berger, Donald Hedinga, Lou Klatt, Scott Jose, Jennifer Holberg, Bob Hudson, Anika Kaptein, Carolyn Meiskins, Deb Breenstra, Sarah Ternage, Debbie Visser, and James Wart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you're especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing.